is Ryan Beasy. Welcome to the Westminster Standard Podcast. I recently marked the 10th anniversary of my ordination. During my brief time in the PCA, her trajectory seems to have shifted. In 2010, it seemed like we were on a collision course for merger with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, just as the PCA merged with the RPCES 40 years ago. Recently, however, the PCA seems to be recommitting herself to her historic polity, her historic positions on ordination and the callings of men and women, and an historic position on human sexuality. Additionally, it seems as though progressive churches are leaving or thinking of leaving, and robustly confessional, ordinary means of grace, independent congregations are contemplating joining the PCA. And so I've wondered... Is this simply part of the ebb and flow of life in the kingdom of God? The church becomes sometimes more, sometimes less pure. Or have we in the PCA indeed turned a corner as a denomination to become intentionally committed to walk in the old paths of the scripture and committed to the Westminster standards as our philosophy of ministry? Well, to help me understand this, I am joined by the esteemed historian, the Reverend Dr. Uh, David Hall, pastor of Midway Presbyterian Church in Powder Springs, Georgia, and the author of the recent book, Irony and the PCA, uh, which has become the go-to volume, the defining volume uh, for the history of the first half century of the Presbyterian Church in America, as well as teaching elder Zach Groff, who runs a blog or something when he's not losing in volleyball to junior high students at summer camp. So welcome to both of you. Hi. Thanks for coming on. So um, Dr. Hall, you've, uh, you've just completed this uh, monumental volume, uh, almost 500 pages detailing every uh, year of, of the General Assembly, giving a great introduction uh, to uh, the PCA, an overview of how we got to where we are. Thank you for this great work. Well, thank you, Ryan. Good, good to be with both of you, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and uh, try to try to address your questions. I'm not sure I have good answers, but we'll we'll give give you what we got. Well, we'll take answers. <laughs> uh, so you you titled it PCA at fifty, uh, irony and, and the uh, PCA. Um, would you like to explain that title? Uh, I think you do a good job in the introduction, but someone who's just looking at it uh, may wonder, what is that? Sure. Ir- irony is, a, is a, uh, an ancient uh, Greek stage term, uh, along with history and tragedy uh, and comedies. Uh, and uh, I actually stole the uh, title from a, a book by Martin Marty, University of Chicago professor of religion. Uh, and it, it occurs to me that the PCA is full of, full of a bunch of really wonderful people, but sometimes when we get together as a group, when we get together as groups, we don't always uh, think as uh, clearly as we should. And so the forces of irony seem to be at work. It's not uncommon for a religious group, uh, think of think of a hundred years uh, span of history, for example, to start off and be uh, very traditional, very conservative, but then over time to change and end up on the left wing. Uh, there are actually very few cases of history where organizations begin on the left wing and trend to the right. Uh, that, that is a real anomaly. Uh, the tides of history seem to wash only to the left, uh, with ever so few exceptions. So it, it seems to me that we uh, irony also causes us to be a little bit more humble in our assessments, uh, rather than a triumphalistic work claiming uh, uh, all the greatnesses of the PCA, which can become very embarrassing in a, sh- a few short decades, 
uh, I charted out to put together a number of things that I'd written really over the years, uh, some recently, some a long time ago, uh, trying to use the annual general assembly as a, a window uh, into the life of a particular denomination which chartered itself to be a decidedly conservative traditionalist denomination and see how we could measure that uh, and find whether it hits its target or not over a 50-year period. I found that to be a helpful approach as I was reading through it, that it wasn't this triumphalist, uh, there wasn't a triumphalist tone. It was it was quite realistic, warts and all. Uh, Zach, you published several uh, selections on the uh, PCA Polity blog. Uh, what were some of your favorite uh, aspects of, of this work? You know, I... I couldn't put the book down, which might sound surprising since this is a digest of assembly experiences and minutes, which on the face of things doesn't sound like the most exciting reading in the world. But when you love the PCA, when you love your church, and as uh, Dr. Hall put it, you, you get a chance to look into the windows of the past uh, and take glances at the development of the church, it really does make for exciting reading. Some of the my favorite um, moments in the book, we might say, uh, of course, those early few assemblies when they were getting uh, the railroad tracks laid down for that steam engine to to just pull out of the station. That's a, that's always exciting. Um, reading about the 91 assembly and particularly Dr. Uh, Palmer Robertson's role in the Bills and Overtures Committee, which is now just called Overtures Committee, that that was or I think he was an administrative committee. Uh, committee of commissioners that was pretty that was pretty remarkable and then um you know getting to see my my co-pastor mentioned here and there is uh, is gratifying and other men that that i've known in my short time running around in pca circles a bit um but the the thing that i think is very helpful is that um dr hall presents the pca as grappling with the kind of Niberian problem of moral man and immoral society and, and how people behave differently in groups and perhaps their uh, their personal character might suggest as individuals. Um, but also the the general theological thrust of the book. He's dealing with a lot of sociological kind of changes in the denomination and um, but we're not losing sight of the fact that the PCA really is a theological body. We are a church, an expression of uh, Christ's body and, um, and the visible church. And uh, I didn't lose that sense reading it cover to cover. Um, if anything, I grew my appreciation of the PCA as a really precious visible expression of, um, of the church of Christ. Well, Dr. Hall, you came into the PCA with the uh, RPCES, is that right? Well, yeah, I attended Covenant Seminary in the late 70s. Um, my background, I, I, I grew up in, a, uh, in the South in Memphis. Uh, my wife and I both uh, grew up there. We were there in the difficult summers of the 1960s. And I grew up a Methodist. She was a Catholic. Um, I came to Christ in 1972, uh, through, actually through the Jesus Movement. And uh, was a, a pretty non-denominational fellow. I went to Labrie uh, after I finished my undergraduate work. And it was at Labrie in Switzerland that pointed me to Covenant Seminary. So I went to Covenant Seminary. This is kind of, Zach, you'll get a kick out of this. I attended at the convocation and we introduced ourselves. And uh, I was there as a United Methodist, a charismatic, 
I had a uh, Schofield Bible, which was the only Bible I had at the time. I thought it was the Bible. And it was there on a scholarship from uh, a, a women's group that were kind of like Masons. And I introduced myself, and everybody laughed. I didn't know what was so funny about that. But uh, I, I clearly was not a Reformed Presbyterian. <clears throat> and while I was there for those, those years of, of study, uh, I studied with a, a really excellent faculty. Uh, Dr. Rayburn Sr. was the president. He taught us preaching and worship. Uh, my first sermon uh, was charitably graded at a C minus, <clears throat> which is very humbling. Uh, and there, I'm sure there was a lot of generosity even in that grade. Uh, but we had a, had a good faculty at Covenant at the time. Uh, there was a close relationship with Schaefer and Labrie. Uh, and a number of our, our entering class came straight from Labrie. So it was, it was a pretty philosophically oriented group, which was, was my background in undergraduate. And I really benefited from the time. What I want to say about the faculty at that time was they, they were amazingly orthodox and patient with a, with a student like me and many others. And over those, those three years, I fought and resisted. I, I was not a Calvinist and uh, just resisted every one of the, the points of Calvinism. Uh, and I obviously lost. So I had to run up the white flag <clears throat> and historic reformed theology uh, won my heart. But uh, some of the teachers I had were Dr. John Sanderson in systematic theology, Barton Payne, uh, tragically died in a, in a mountain climbing accident midway through. He was an Old Testament professor. Um, but I went to Covenant. I graduated in 1980. And uh, the truth of the matter was I could not be ordained into the Midwest Presbytery of the RPCS uh, because I, they would have quickly known and I knew that I wasn't a Calvinist. I wasn't Reformed. I still had work to do. So I was actually ordained in the Southern Presbyterian Church in 1980. And uh, Ryan was uh, in, a, in a presbytery near you, uh, was ordained at the First Presbyterian Church in Rome, Georgia. Oh, wow. And served nice. there. That church eventually became EPC. But when I went there in 1980, I was ordained into the PCUS uh, and was accepted as a, as a conservative and a liberal denomination. I would not have been uh, approved at the Midwest Presbytery, the RPCS. That was a very strong RPCS Presbytery because of the presence of Dr. Rayburn, Dr. Knight, Dr. Raymond, and, and others who, who were very, very solid confessionalists at the time. Uh, in fact, I, I would measure, and this may surprise you, Ryan, to hear, but I, I would say in the, in the late 70s, Covenant Seminary was considered more reformed and more confessional than RTS. Uh, so at the time, it was a smaller seminary. <clears throat> of course, at that time, I guess Jackson was the only RTS seminary. Uh, but it was- And a number of the leading very, faculty at Jackson went to Covenant, I uh, went to, uh, yeah, Covenant in St. Louis and then came and taught it at Jackson later. Yeah. So that does, that does seem to be uh, reasonable. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the seminaries changed uh, over time as, as most seminaries do. But uh, at the time, I received an excellent theological education. I was challenged. It's been an education that really lasted me for life. Uh, one of my favorite professors was Will Barker, with whom I regularly I probably disagree with Will more than any other professor I had uh, at the time. But Will taught me to uh, love church history. Toward the end of my time there, David Calhoun came and was a, a great addition to the church history uh, department. 
Uh, but I was actually ordained in the PCUS, served at First Pres Rome uh, for two years. And that church, which is a historic one, founded in 1833, uh, we served with a, another pastor and, and led that church out of the PCUS. And they chose, because of the senior pastor's uh, affinities, to go into the EPC. And it was at that time that I transferred to the RPCES. Uh, the two last guys to join the RPCS, this is a funny, funny tidbit of history, I guess an irony, we might say, uh, <laughs> were my, uh, 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 my, myself uh, and uh, uh, another uh, pastor who, who's is pr pretty outrageous, kind of a, little bit, a good bit more moderate than I, and we were examined and received uh, a week before the JNR at Covenant College. Wow. And uh, I, I felt I, I felt privileged to be grilled by Gordon Clark, uh, and he just he he nailed us, um, and so uh, it was good. But I was received. Uh, so I was in, in the month of May, 1982. My wife and I were in four denominations. Uh, we were both at the beginning of May in the PCUS. Uh, by virtue of the Rome Church leaving, she was in the EPC. I was in the RPCS for a week. And then by virtue of JNR, uh, labored outside of bounds uh, in uh, North Atlanta, uh, North uh, Atlanta Presbyterian, which is now Metro uh, Atlanta Presbyterian. Quite a month. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. And the interesting thing was that when we left the PCS, the PCS didn't know what the RPCES was. <laughs> they knew what the RPCA was. Yeah, knew, and there would have been they they literally did not and then and the Presbytery Cherokee Presbytery, which was from North Georgia down to the uh, uh, really Marietta suburbs, uh, they just didn't know what the RPCES was and didn't do their homework and and so uh, I was transferred there. I knew the JNR would take place or was fairly confident that it would, and uh, then went to North Georgia Presbytery. We stayed on in Rome for two years because it had been a fairly turbulent period for that church, and, and we thought having done all that, we need, we owed it to them to stay. And then and then we went to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, 1984, where I served for almost 20 years. And then back now, now we're in the metro Atlanta area for uh, another 20 years. Longevity, and which has given you a great uh, vantage point to reflect on the history of the PCA. What, uh, how do you see the PCA changing since uh, JNR? Uh, in, in 82, I, you know, you're, you start at the beginning, well, before the beginning yeah. uh, with the old continuing church. Um, and then I, I have, I have a slightly contrarian position than some of my conservative friends. I, I'm, I'm not sure the RPCES is JNR was what affected the PCA that much as some other trends. I think actually the first 10 years before the RP, uh, JNR, I think the first 10 years of the life of the PCA set its course to be more of a big tent uh, Presbyterian denomination. Uh, like I said, some of the strains of the RPCS were very strong, very orthodox, very uh, rooted in the regulative principle. If you went to Covenant Seminary and graduated any time before 1980, you, you were, you were just, just brainwashed with the regulative principle in worship, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, so I think it's up and down. I, I think in some ways we've made progress in some sectors maybe regression uh, in others. Uh, but, but I think the PCA's had ups and downs. I've been, I've been around long enough to see those ups and downs. Uh, Zach, you mentioned the 1991 assembly. That, 
really the years 86 through 91, 92, I think were, were years of struggle. They were formative uh, and conservatives were, were sort of asleep. Uh, we were awakened and I think arose and did, a, did, did some yeoman's work. Uh, while, while I can't really say there were a lot of victories, the lines were held. Uh, at least from my perspective. And, and I, I guess that's one thing too, Zach and, and Ryan, to come back to my, my book. One, 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 one friend called it an outlaw's history. Uh, so it's, it's not the history written by victors. Um, it, it, it's one that is, is realistic. There are ups and downs. But uh, those years were, were real struggles. And then, and then in the late 90s, I think, uh, Ryan, there were probably three, four, or five assemblies close together uh, where there looked like there was some, some real return with zeal to holding to strongly traditional notions in the PCA. And then, and then it's uh, pendulum swung back in the, in, in the early 2000s. Um, so I, I've just, just seen a, 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 a series of up and down. Uh, my eschatological position does not allow me to be a post-millennialist. Uh, as, as my host sometimes sounds like he is, so I'm not quite that optimistic. So my <laughs> my my view of the PCA actually fits with my eschatology. I'm I'm a, I'm a committed Amil, not by default, but actually for exegetical reasons. So there are ups and downs. There's there's you know the good and bad growing together. I'm very Augustinian in that notion. You know, um, Ryan, as I read the book, um, piggybacking on what the author here has said about what his intention was. Um, the way I would characterize it is Dr. Hall's done a good job of balancing close inspection and big picture treatment and not, not sugarcoating things. So um, how did I put it in a review? I wrote, I said, the framing of the PCA's history under the theme of historical and dramatic irony may irk readers who askew self-criticism and prefer triumphalist narratives mediated through rose-colored glasses. But Hall clearly was not seeking to placate company man critics in putting together this book from the publicly available historical record. Instead, he was seeking to put forward a careful presentation of the facts in such a way so as to encourage his readers to maintain vigilance and determination in biblically faithful, confessionally true, and missionally obedient servants service to Christ. And, and I think he accomplished that in the book. Uh, it is a realistic picture. It's not a melancholy picture by any stretch of the imagination, but neither is it triumphalistic or um, or saccharine in its sentimentality or something like that. I think, yeah, and Zachary, thank, thanks for saying that. I wish I'd written that. You, you write better than I did. But I, 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 I feared that, I mean, we've, we've all known we were going to have a 50th birthday party in Memphis, which, you know, was, was my hometown, so I was interested. So, you know, you know these anniversaries are coming up, and I, I've just thought all year the ramp up was going to be a, a large... Uh, session of patting ourselves on the back, how great we are. I mean, I, I've heard so many times, my, my entire 40-year span, over 40 years in the PCA, but, you know, the, from the early 70s, Frank Barker and others would say the PCA is America's last great hope. And I'd always wince, oh man, we we're in more trouble than I thought. If, if that's the case, if we're the last best hope of America, my goodness, but but there's anytime we have an anniversary, anytime we have these these commemorations, uh, we should value what's gone before us, the old paths. Uh, but there's 
there's just some real nauseating uh, self-promotion, self-congratulation. So I, I, I was hoping we could have some appreciation uh, of where we've been, but also with some an honest sense of humility that, that, that there's still a lot to work on. I think also in my book, I try, and, and this is something that, that, you know, Will Barker and other church historians taught me, uh, we, we always should examine ourselves in, in the, the light, not, not of a decade or a generation, but of centuries. So it seems to me that was the second point of comparison in, in, in my book is how, how do we compare the PCA uh, to the broad reform tradition that goes back 500 years? To, to simply compare ourselves to another evangelical group and, and to say, well, I'm, I'm better than that is, is sort of the, the process we, we use when people avoid ever coming to Christ because they say, well, I'm, I'm not a rapist or a child molester or a drug dealer. Relatively speaking, I'm not that much of a sinner. Well, there, there are bigger standards to compare ourselves to. And I, I think that kind of work is always needed. It is humbling, but it is, Zach, you're right. It's encouraging uh, because we see that the Lord is the Lord of his church and he, he is at work. And one of the things you do is uh, remind us that we're not just accountable to other denominations and even other historically Presbyterian denominations, but also our standards. That our success or failure as a denomination is closely linked to how well we conform to what we say we believe, what we confess uh, together. As you know, that that is uh, that is the standard, and that's helpful. How are you able to put this together so uh, quickly? Um, I'm I'm just amazed you know it wasn't it wasn't a week after general assembly i think and this thing was out well i cheated uh as as a as a good student will do i've been writing uh <laughs> digest of general assemblies for over 30 years so those are those are just sitting around a hard drive it dawned on me last fall that i had a lot of uh commentary uh the first 10 years i had to go back and i worked on that the first quarter of this year because I wasn't physically present for those general assemblies. So uh, those are a little bit briefer. They don't, the first 10 years that don't have uh, as many personal observations because I wasn't there. Uh, but for comprehensiveness sake, uh, those need to be filled in. Uh, I think of my 42 years of, of ministry in the PCA, I've only missed a couple of general assemblies and started as, as Ryan uh, and, and Zach, you do and others do uh, as a young presbyter writing these assemblies up. So uh, some of them I had to recover from very old formats uh, and edit. Uh, they, they had some rough edges, uh, but that probably 70% of the book was, was there. Uh, and then I had to go through and change some articles that were blog articles uh, and put them in format. Uh, I, I used to, uh, within about a week, uh, release a, uh, a digest and analysis of General Assembly. So uh, the, the book looks, it probably looks a little bit, a good bit more impressive than it really is. Well, that that's helpful. Um, and, you know, as I, I think I mentioned to you as I was reviewing it, this should be required reading for um, you know, people wanting to understand the PCA, whether they're seminary students or just, uh, you know, elders. Uh, this is, it helps us to understand where we have come from to see where we're going. Um, you know, I think David has given us a new baseline uh, for the history of the PCA. When 
I've sat through now in, in two different presbyteries uh, that I've been involved in, in in various ways. I've sat through many floor exams. And when we get to the church history portion and we ask questions about the, quote, history of the PCA, it's always what were the four, um, you know, founding organizations coming out of the Southern Presbyterian Church? Who, who are some of the, the leading names, people you should know, like Morton Smith, Jack Williamson, and so on. Um, but there's very little about the history since 1973. Sometimes someone will ask, when did JNR take place? Or, you know, and usually it's an old RPCS uh, man who, you know, it, it, there isn't a lot of interest in our less than recent history. Yeah. And, and I think what David gives us is a good, at least at the very least, a good uh, baseline digest, kind of in the style of Charles Hodge or, uh, some of the old guys who who would write these digests of uh, of constitutional history of the PCUSA back in the 19th century, but a good digest to put in the hands of of a, of a candidate or a young presbyter and say, hey, if you really want to get to know the PCA, this is a good starting point. Um, because you, you open up the minutes and it's overwhelming, but this is this is a very helpful work and easy to read, and at least for polity nerds like me, exciting to read. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, as as I read your your book, one of the main themes uh, that I saw was the the tension between being a grassroots denomination, you know, our agencies weren't even allowed to be in the same city uh, initially, uh, to being uh, a centralized uh, bureaucracy. Uh, do you think we have? Is that a healthy tension? Uh, is there a way to achieve a balance? Where do you see us going forward? I know this uh, past general assembly we moved in a more Thornwellian direction, a more grassroots direction with the uh, requirement that the permanent committees give account to the committees of commissioner for these material policy changes. Uh, but how would you assess that, that ebb and flow of centralized versus grassroots? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that having lived as long as I have, a lot of younger candidates w would not even know that if, if, if I hadn't repeated that. I was probably a little too obnoxious about that. But, but it's hard for, for younger students to realize the antipathy in early PCA from even having a central office building. And uh, that, didn't, uh, that didn't accelerate until about the time of the, the JNR. Well, Southern Presbyterians had been burnt by uh, a, a bureaucratic centralization, which coupled with the broadening church liberalizing theology uh, led to the death of the vitality of the PCUS. So I, I'm, a, I'm a small government guy, not only in church polity, but in civil polity. And uh, it, it just, it strikes me that there, there's a lot of danger in bureaucratism. And again, I have some very, very fine friends, uh, close friends who, who, who serve in high offices in the PCA. And uh, I, I think there again, we have to be honest with each other and careful uh, that we not think our centralizing is always good. It's not. Uh, it always depends on, on the people who are, who are uh, holding and turning the levers of an organization. That's true in the local church, true in the presbytery, true in the denomination. Uh, so I, I've been uh, a, little, a little surprised at how quickly, in my opinion, uh, how rapidly the PCA has become very centralized. So your, your remark, Ryan, earlier that, that the 50th uh, General Assembly sort of held some checks and accounting, 
accountability. Forty years ago, that wouldn't even have been thought necessary. So again, let's let's wow. let's look at that. You you've been to ten assemblies. Uh, I've been to forty. Some have been to fifty. Uh, it, it used to be a given that the permanent committees uh, were there under the authority and did not have permission to run ahead of the assembly. Now, as, as, as a corporatist uh, or as a, as a businessman or a manager, uh, you want that authority so that you can exercise leadership and move your organization ahead. There's, that's the tension. You want our, our leaders to be able to lead. We want to be able to do that in a local church. You want your pastors to be able to, to lead not only from the pulpit, but in, in every sector that God gives them opportunity. Uh, th that being said, the, the PCA has moved rapidly uh, to accumulate uh, billions of dollars. Uh, I, I think we're close to a $200 million enterprise. You take all of the agencies, uh, and two of those account for 50% of that. Two of those, MTW and RUF, uh, are about $100 million uh, income vessels per year, and uh, the, the others are smaller. Well, again, it's a question that begs to be asked. What, what could we do with $200 million every year? Our, our office buildings are paid for. Our, our seminary and college buildings are, are largely paid for. There may be some small debt, but compared to assets, it's nominal. Uh, I mean, we have, we're a debt-free corporation with $200 million of income a year. I would love to see a, a, an assembly be bold enough and, and progressive enough to say, let's let's start all over and look at some things uh, and not perpetuate all of the managerial traditions and ask this central question, how could we use, could we use $200 million better? How could we reappropriate some of those funds uh, instead of keep doing uh, the same things? So, you know, the PCA has become large, and, and with that size are opportunities. Uh, that doesn't make us better than any other Presbyterian denomination. Uh, but it does seem a matter of stewardship that we ought to be having some monitoring and uh, assessment of our bureaucracies. Most people don't even want to use the B word, and I understand it's offensive. Uh, but it, it, it's a matter of, of common sense to, to call a, a bureaucracy a bureaucracy. Uh, the, the question is whether it's a good bureaucracy or not and whether it's, it's serving the churches. My view of the General Assembly, I, and I, I guess, I guess it, it could be as much of a presupposition as, as anything, but my presupposition and my beginning point on the value of General Assembly is that the General Assembly exists for one reason, and that is to serve the churches. If the General Assembly is not serving the churches, then it's, it's either a theological consortium or it's a management tool or a mission board, all of which have their place. But I, I, I think we could have some refocus over the coming years. Uh, to me, that would be a healthy trend in the PCA if we want to see how the General Assembly can actually serve the existing local churches better, listen to them, hear from them, uh, and, and not try to uh, achieve overly broad targets for its own mission. That was something you brought out in your in your book. You know, they'll have these goals of a thousand churches planted or two thousand, whatever it was, and then, and they'll miss them by eighty five percent. But it sounds like a great goal. 
uh, but is it reasonable? Is it a proper stewardship of of our resources to uh, to engage in that goal that's clearly unattainable? And the goal thing that was a great aspect of your book, not because you're rubbing sand and dirt in people's eyes or trying to rain on their parade or anything like that. You weren't trying to do that, but injecting a dose of realism into things. I talked to ruling elders here who are in, in the Greenville area who are very excited about church planting. And, and that's encouraging to me. I'm on my local MA committee. I'm the treasurer. I'm, I'm actively involved in that. I'm a church planter myself in many ways with this reorganization project at our church. The oldest church plant in the PCA. That's right. That's right. Breaking the mold at 180 years old as a church plant. Uh, but you know, it's because, well, anyway, you can listen to the very first episode of the Westminster standard to get that story and, and, and all, but, um, when I talk to these these well-meaning ruling elders, they they are so excited about the big goal. What is it, three thousand churches or something like that, right now in the next ten years? And they have no—I mean, I didn't know about this either until I read the book. No background in terms of the history of planting out, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals and just missing them by a mile yeah. over and over again. I think that's very helpful historical perspective to allow us to actually pursue kingdom extension. Uh, without setting ourselves up for massive discouragement. Yeah, I, and see, you guys are too young to have, have lived through this, but the first caucus group was Vision 2000. And Vision 2000 was a, was a political caucus group by some of the leading founding fathers of the PCA, but it was yoked to the M&A goal to have 2,000 churches by 2,000. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't come close. E even in, in recent reports, I think, I think this past General Assembly, uh, it was reported that uh, we we were back to growth rates that were that were good, but again, if you look at it over a larger period of time, they're fairly fairly normal for which we rejoice. I mean, growth rates are better than rates of decline, which most mainline churches have, uh, and even some evangelical churches. Uh, that being said, uh, when we hear about new churches, we also for, conveniently we only look at the addition column. We never factor in the church losses dismissions, subtractions, closures. Uh, and, and the reality is uh, our most funded missional units uh, are underproducing in terms of a dollar per mission ratio. Uh, so again, let's, let's be honest about that. I, I've said for years, for, well, for decades now, uh, our M&A department could do itself a favor and the whole church a favor not studying successes, but by studying failures. Uh, here again, the PCA, it's hard for us to get anybody to actually admit their failures. There are. And uh, it, it seems to me that we could actually do some postmortems on those and learn a lot, uh, learn a lot of things to avoid. Uh, but until we admit that there are actual failures, we're not going to do, we're certainly not going to do that study. So, uh, we, we could learn a lot uh, from some of those things. And I hope, again, I hope in time we'll have a little bit more objectivity to some of these studies. Yeah, and to your point, I think it's only been the last 13 years that the stated clerk has reported on uh, ministers who have transferred out of the denomination or churches that have transferred out of the denomination or otherwise dissolved or merged or reverted to mission status. And so the data we have is is fairly incomplete. It really only tracks the last 13 of our 
first 50 years of history as a denomination, if I'm getting my my facts right. Yeah, there, there, there always has been, I think, just a slight correction, there's been a listing of, of ministers who, who are deceased, ministers who transfer, churches that transfer. Um, it, it's like anything else. We, we tend to toot our own horn. We tend to brag when we have a good year, uh, when those ratios uh, please us. When they don't, we ignore them. Um, well, I want to uh, kind of change gears just a little bit to talk about the Reformation Worship Conference, if you have a few more minutes. Yes, thanks. Uh, our church started and hosted a Reformation Worship Conference in 2010, was the first, and we had a wonderful run. We had some uh, great early participants, uh, and then COVID hit. We've been on hiatus for the last three years, so we're relaunching the Reformation Worship Conference. All your listeners are invited. Uh, it's very affordable. We kept the prices at two th 2019 levels, which nobody else can do. Uh, there were great values for your dollar back then. Uh, we got a wonderful group of speakers that's come together quickly. Carl Truman will be back with us. I think Carl's one of the leading voices uh, of sanity in the religious world <laughs> today. So Carl uh, and Katrina Truman will be with us. Uh, Bob Godfrey, Emeritus pre Professor and President of Westminster, California, will be back. Uh, we're very glad to have Kent Butterfield, uh, who's RPCNA pastor in Durham, North Carolina, with us. Uh, this year, Chad Van Dixhorn, who's, who's recently um, joined the faculty of RTS Charlotte, uh, a longtime historian of Friends, going to join us. And, and we're going to look at the theme, as you might expect, of Christianity and liberalism. Our conference uh, title and theme is Christianity or Modernism. I'll just note for your listeners two twists for that. One is uh, the great uh, classic book by Machen that we celebrate this year uh, that so many people are reading and, and we'll have copies for everybody uh, as, as gifts uh, by some, um, is entitled Christianity and Liberalism. In its first iteration as lectures, Machen styled it Christianity and Modernism. So we've gone back to his original and then added a Kuyperian disjunct and used or instead of and because I think that was the heart of Machen's uh, work and, and still is, is our concern uh, that there is a choice uh, that must be made and the gospel will always be stalked by various modernisms and uh, the church has to be on its guard continually uh, to make sure we're looking at Christ and his word uh, instead of the world's gospel. The dates are October 19th through 22. Please join us. We're uh, in Northwest Atlanta uh, metropolitan area. And uh, I just think we've got a wonderful lineup. Obviously, I'm biased, uh, but we're going to do a few things differently. And uh, I'll talk about those yeah, later. Yeah, there's a bit of an expansion, yeah, uh, of, the, uh, of the conference uh, from yeah. previous years. I think it starts uh, Thursday morning instead of Thursday afternoon. There's, uh, what's going yeah, on right. Thursday morning? There's three new thrusts that, that this sort of, the, we didn't, we're not smart enough to devise these. They just happened and, and presented themselves to us. We're going to have a pastor's conference the morning of Thursday the 19th. And a, a person can come to just that if he wants to. And uh, in, in that, we're going to bring together some experienced pastors, talk about some, some very important topics on our theme, uh, and give some practical wisdom. Uh, it, it's a great symposium. Uh, in, in the morning, and, and uh, we'll have lunch together. So that's one 
new initiative. The second is we've had a, a large number of college students start attending and showing interest. So uh, we're going to embed in our conference some special activities for college students. Uh, if you know college students, this is the conference they need to be present for. This is this is the Asbury revival of the fall. And uh, uh, I said that jokingly as a former Methodist, <laughs> your, your audience will get the joke. Uh, and then the third thing we're doing is is trying to bring together people like you guys, bring together a, a, a group of collegial podcasters uh, who are on the same page in, in many ways. Uh, I think I think Todd Pruitt and the Mortification of Spin uh, folks are going to be there. Uh, a new friend of mine who's a Baptist in Winston-Salem, Jordan Stefaniak, is uh, pushing our conference for the London Lyceum. Uh, it's a great, by the way, a, a fine website and podcast if your readers are not familiar with the London Lyceum. Uh, Presbycast uh, will be there. Uh, I think I think the uh, either the Presby Gals or Presby Gals plus Husband, if they let Sean Morris come, uh, are going to be there and some others. So we want we want to encourage the work of podcasters and give them some some uh, recognition and this one too which has developed since we sent our invitations out so uh, ryan we're counting on you guys uh, being recognized and uh, it'll be a great celebration our evening services and our worship services are wonderful times to worship god uh, our, our our preaching faculty this year consists of uh, bob godfrey who will do the opening uh, worship service david strain from first press uh, jackson mississippi who so kindly uh, stepped in for the, the recently deceased uh, Harry Reader. Um, and then Neil Stewart, who you, you probably know, has a, has a call that will be known by the time this airs. Uh, and Neil's a wonderful preacher. And Terry Johnson will give our, our, our sermon at our morning worship. We're so glad to have uh, TJ come back and preach for us. And then Bob Godfrey will preach that evening. So we're, we're blessed. The worship services are open to anybody. And uh, we also try to model what we think Reformed worship should be as that which builds up the people of God and focuses on his word. I like the uh, the expansion of the conference this year, that not just focusing on worship as it has in previous years, but still keeping that emphasis, but addressing more um, more concerns of the church. I know I've, I've been three or four, maybe five times, and it's always food for my soul. Um, I've missed it these last a few years. I'm, I'm thankful that it's going to be returning. I want. I know, I know. You know. There's a whole conference. There's, there's going to be whole books dedicated to this question. But you know, this year is, of course, the year of Machen. Um, what would you say are two or three things that are uh, significant uh, for the PCA in Machen? How do we, how do we avoid getting to where the PCUSA was in 1923 or 1936? Uh, what what are what are the lessons of Machen for us today? Well, I, I think if you look at Machen's book, the, and we, we originally thought about doing a book, and that was part of the plan actually two years ago. We, had, we were ready to pull this conference back two years ago, uh, and for the second year in a row, there was another COVID spike in July, so we had to put off our plans. We, we would have been the, probably the first conference that commemorated uh, Machen's work, and we were going to do a companion volume around with it. We're not going to do that, I don't think, but, but the... The chapter titles would be different. The topics would be very different than the topics. He was dealing with supernaturalism, uh, the resurrection of Christ, the truthfulness of Scripture. Uh, we are, are going to be addressing 
more pressing and more modern topics. The value, I think, of Machen's book is precisely in its thesis. And this isn't going to be a conference where we uh, give altar calls and ask people to invite Jay Gresson Machen into their heart. Uh, it, it's not going to be Machen, Machen, Machen. We're, no, we're going to take his thesis uh, and, and apply that to the topics of our day. That still has value. In fact, I think, I, I think if anything, most conservative denominations historically have, have dropped the ball in not having some kind of agency, some kind of institutional uh, reflex uh, as a guard, as a protector against moving into liberalizing uh, trends. For example, the PCA has, you know, why, why, don't, why, don't, why don't we have a department of anti-liberalism? I, I, I'd get our church to fund that. That's a good, that would be a good thing for the next 50 years. How do, how do, we, how do we learn from the past? Unless, unless you're naive enough to think, uh, and I, I might have coined the term, unless you believe in denominational exceptionalism. Uh, i.e. that the PCA is so great and so pure that it'll never have a problem, or unless you deny history, that history does have this predominantly leftward push uh, in, in its tides. Uh, why don't we simply observe that, be honest with that, and say, okay, what could we do for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to try to either prevent that or forestall it? And maybe that forestalling would be the best we could do. But, but you look at the, the hurricane that's, that's uh, in, in the Gulf Coast and moving its way uh, through Georgia, South Carolina now, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole network that's, that's, that's devoted, the Weather Channel. Uh, you know, where's, where's the PCA's Jim Cantori? Ryan, that's you. You're going to have to be the Jim Cantori <laughs> of the PCA hanging onto a pole uh, with your feet extended at a 90 degree angle in, in 130 that's definitely Ryan. mile per hour winds. We, <laughs> we need a bunch of those, but, but you know, and Zach, you can be the Dr. Knapp. You can be the, you can be the meteorologist expert. Um, and, but, but why don't we, we know a hurricane's coming. So if you know that you take precautions <clears throat> now, sure you can be crazy and you can, you can look, be afraid of your shadow. That's not what we're advocating, but uh, it seems to me that if we value, for, the value from Mayton's study is that we learn that there is an ongoing, there will always be an assault on the Orthodox Church. There will always be a continued attack. We live in spiritual warfare in every century. So why do we not guard uh, on that? And uh, to be sure, the issues are very different. Uh, however, that being said, I thought about your question. If you go back to 1923, a 100-year comparison, uh, uh, that being said, at least in the Southern Presbyterian Church, uh, there was no push, no thought, no, no idea of women's ordination in 1923. Uh, the Southern Presbyterian Church finally did that in 1964, 63-64. Um, although the Northern Presbyterian Church did that earlier, but, but, but some of the, the ideas we've dealt with, dealt with in terms of gender identity and and acceptance of homosexuality, those things were foreign to the Auburn Affirmationist of 1923. So while they were pushing the bounds on, on, on supernaturalism in certain traditional areas, uh, in, in other ways, uh, the, the, the 1923 liberal Presbyterians would probably be tuned into your podcast. So the, the, the tides are always, always washing and, and moving, the boundaries keep moving, uh, and I think that's something that, that we need to be uh, alert to. I have, I have valued uh, Machen's work 
uh, for all my life because of that. And people forget also he, he was a very competent, competent scholar in many other areas. He's a very good New Testament scholar. Uh, the Origin of Paul's Religion is a wonderful book. The Virgin Birth is still unsurpassed uh, in treating that doctrinal uh, area. So uh, we, we want to appreciate Machen, but what we want to do is call our churches to be awake, uh, to be alert, uh, and to seek to stand firm and, uh, and be faithful. All of our sermons, all of our preachers have been given uh, the charge to bring us an exposition of a passage that will be on that theme. And many of the, many of the breakout sessions and other lectures will be as well. T. David Gordon's going to be with us, by the way. Ryan, one of your former professors. Great. That's a late addition. I'm very, I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, yes, so, yes. So we'll have him do something like why Johnny still can't sing hymns, why Johnny still can't preach, and why, <laughs> why Johnny still doesn't have a sense of humor. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> we need that Gordon. one. Yeah, David always brings, brings, brings a lot to us. We're, we're grateful for him. You know, I'm so glad this Zach, conference you run is coming a, uh... back, Brian. Um, I, I just want to, you know, kind of fanboy out here a little bit. I'm so glad this conference is coming back. I think it was at the Reformation Worship Conference that I first met a dear friend of mine, Brad Isbell. And I first met um, also my dear friend and now former boss, Jonathan Master, who subsequently became president of Greenville Seminary. And I worked with him for a couple of years before becoming a pastor. Um, I've met so many so many people who have become friends, associates, um, collaborators in different publishing and writing projects and contributors to things that I'm an editor or for which I'm an editor. And um, it's just a, a really, uh, really sweet time. My wife and I are trying to figure out how, how we're going to be able to go with six kids uh, so that my children can start to really, uh, especially my older kids who, who listen diligently to preaching, can start to uh, benefit from from this kind of gathering and conference. And so hopefully, hopefully we'll see you there in October. Uh, I hope so. Bring them, bring them. And, and, you know, my advice would be bring them all, sell a couple on the way and uh, <laughs> take the oldest four. <laughs> I understand some uh, men meet their uh, future wives there also. Um, so if you're uh, unattached and uh, this is a great place to meet like-minded uh, reformed uh Thoughtful Christians. Um, we chose. Zach, you are the. We chose the oh, fall, by the way, Ryan. We chose the fall because there are so many conferences in the spring, uh, and, and, and this is wide open territory. Uh, you'll also, if you're a football fan, note from the dates that this is on the bye weekend uh, of the Georgia schedule, which, whenever we host it, is always when we do that. Um, next year, we're uh, going to have a conference in Savannah. So we have an agreement with the Independent Presbyterian Church to alternate sites, and that's going to be wonderful. The dates will still be in October, but it, it's the conference for the fall. We hope you'll be there or be square. Join us, and uh, it's a great time of fellowship. Uh, the London Lyceum. Machen would appreciate not missing a football game. Yeah, the, uh, yeah although somebody as else as an avid Tennessee may play, but they yeah. don't. <laughs> I don't know. If they, do they matter? Uh, Zach, you're the editor of the. Uh, Presbyterian Polity site. Uh, so you are interacting with a lot of the major themes circulating around the, the especially the PCA, but the, the reform world generally. Uh, I, I'd be curious to know your insights into, you know, just one or two things quickly that uh, you see at Machen being uh, significant or prescient in our own day. Well, that's an excellent question, Ryan, one for which I wasn't specifically prepared for but uh but i think i i think i actually have a couple of things on my mind that i could share that that dr machen uh would be particularly interested in in the first place 
Um, the whole thrust of the website is not to be a polemical platform or to um, to be you know kicking up dust where dust does not need to be kicked up. It's really meant to be a resource to help people engage competently and from a position of having information and and engage um, in good faith with ongoing discussions and debates within our church, particularly the PCA. But we might expand that even a bit more broadly to other NAPARC and confessionally Presbyterian denominations. And whenever I read Machen's writing, he was a man of, of, of charity, a man also of, of great care with his opponent's positions, that he would understand them well and present them well. And, and in a way that they would accept. And, and that's really what we're trying to do in PCA Polity. And I think you'd appreciate that. Uh, maybe a bit more specifically, though, this year, and we see it with item one before the presbyteries, which was drawn out of Overture 26, I believe, from our last General Assembly, um, continuing to wrestle with words. Now, we're not wrangling about mere words, but um, we are seeking to be precise so that we can deal charitably and considerately with our neighbors and how we use words such as pastor, elder, minister, um, deacon in our churches. And I think Dr. Machen makes a pretty big deal about words and their definitions in Christianity and liberalism. And certainly that is, yes. uh, that's drawing appropriate distinctions and, and working out of the same lexicon is, is pretty important as, a uh, Al Mohler said, those who win the war over words will win the culture war or whatever, however he puts it. And as Dr. Reeder said, um, we have, what does he say? We have, we're using the same vocabulary, but different dictionaries or something like that. Um, right. We're talking about uh, biblical Christianity versus progressive Christianity. And so I think Dr. Machen would be very concerned about how, for example, the word pastor gets bandied around and applied or the word deacon gets bandied around and applied in the PCA. And um, and that's something that we're dealing with right now. Yeah. Those are good words. Uh, thank you both for coming on. I, uh, I do want to uh, commend uh, this book, uh, Irony in the Presbyterian Church in America. And to our listeners or viewers, if you will share this episode and uh, uh, link to us uh, at the WS Pod on Twitter, uh, we will enter you in uh, to a contest uh, to win a copy of uh, this book. I think it'll also be available at the Reformation Worship Conference, but if you uh, don't want to wait then and you don't want to buy it, uh, share this podcast on uh, Twitter and be sure to tag us in it and uh, we will send, uh, we will enter you into a drawing and, and uh, one of you will have a copy sent your way. So uh, Dr. Hall, thank you very much for uh, your time and the efforts you put into writing uh, this book and uh, to kicking off the Reformation and Worship Conference again this year. Zach, thank you for your insights as well. Appreciate having both of you on today. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Hi, this is Daphne Beasy. Thanks for joining the conversation with my dad on the Westminster Standard Podcast, which is sponsored by Jew3 for additional resources or to make a donation, visit our website, Jew3PCA.org. Please come back again next week as I talk with Pastors Kyle Brent and Matt Adams regarding Issue 1, the use of official titles by unordained people in the PCA. Issues related to language and the role of unordained people in the life of the PCA continues to be an issue. Please pray we can have peace on this point. <laughs> <laughs>